Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. And this week, we're talking to three experts about welfare, why access to welfare is under threat, and why money is only part of the picture. Dan, what do you think of when I say welfare? Well, I think of food stamps or SNAP. In the U.S., that's a government-run system where people that don't make a lot of money get credits that they can use to buy food. It's a pretty good system. In Canada, I think about unemployment benefits, access to housing, public health care. Those seem to be the most pressing issues right now. Well, it just seems like welfare can mean a lot of different things depending on where a person is from and kind of the political environment they were raised in as well. But What's the definition we're working with today, Nahal? What's the big picture? Here's what welfare means, at least for this episode. So at its most basic, really, welfare refers to any kind of social program, and that includes things like food stamps, health care, pensions, unemployment benefits. How these systems are supported, however, differs hugely from country to country. In some countries, welfare is publicly funded. In others, it's private. And in still others, sometimes it's a mix of the two. Okay. So, welfare. Programs that provide basic needs to live. In the U.S., the ones that come to mind are unemployment and food stamps, SNAP, like I was mentioning. Different from Canada, pensions are not publicly funded. They're usually tied to a job. And same with health care. We obviously don't have very much public health care in the U.S. And that's a point of contention, a big one here. So I think that a lot of people only start to consider welfare when they need to access it. But welfare is a really important part of society because it enables us to be able to go to work, to go about our lives, and to be part of a functional society. When welfare becomes privately funded, like healthcare is in the United States, less people are able to access it than in a country like Canada, where it's provided by the state. So for this episode, I wanted to find out why welfare is so important to how our societies and economies work, and what's going on with our ability to access welfare, especially as we're dealing with life after the pandemic, political unrest all over the world, climate change, and a global recession. My name is Miguel Nino Sarasua, and I am a senior lecturer at SOAS University of London in the UK, and I am also a non-resident senior research fellow at UNU Wider in Helsinki. Miguel Nino Sarasua focuses in his work on how welfare systems impact inequality. I started off by asking him to explain the difference between a welfare system and a welfare state. The welfare systems are integrated policies that with a set of public measures are designed to reduce and prevent poverty and vulnerability across the life cycle of individuals. These systems include a number of policies that aim to protect, for example, children and families, also certain periods of life like maternity or old age, and also when workers lose their jobs. So these are policies that are aimed to protect, for example, those who lose their employment and also who get injured when they are working or they get sick. And obviously these systems together form the welfare state, which is this set of policies and also regulations that are designed to precisely protect societies. People are eligible to receive a pension when they retire or when they are sick, they have access to the health system. 
But also welfare states include social assistance programs that are designed to protect those who are vulnerable, despite the fact that they may not necessarily be in the labor market, and also labor market regulations to protect workers, to ensure minimum standards for employment and safeguarding workers' rights. So it's a combination of policies that fall within different strategies. What happens if we don't have welfare systems in place? If you think about the history of societies, we didn't have the welfare state or welfare systems in the 18th century, for example, in Europe and some other high-income countries. But more regularly, we start to see the emergence of welfare institutions in developing countries around the mid of the 20th century. So before a large percentage of the population was unprotected to these kind of shocks. So you think about how, for example, families protected themselves against unexpected events was very often the families of friends. But in the end, those who didn't have these social networks were exposed to all sorts of risks and dangers, exploitation and poverty and very often an early death. No? So in a way, the welfare state has provided the foundations and the conditions for society to be in a better position. As a result, access to welfare has become essential to the functioning of our societies. We know that about half of the world population is covered at least by one of these forms of social protection or welfare institutions. And therefore, welfare systems have become one of the most important policy instruments against poverty and vulnerability in the developing world. But within the developing world, there are huge differences between who has access and who doesn't. And just to give you an example, whereas in Latin American countries, about half of the population have access to different forms of social protection. In sub-Saharan Africa, these level of protection just covers about 15% of the population. But also within, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa, we see that, for example, people in old age are on average better protected. About one third of the population has access to an old age pension. But then if you think about those who are unemployed, just about 4% of the entire labor force has actually access to unemployment insurance. So even within the regions or countries, there's a huge variation in terms of the level of protection among different populations. Miguel told me that across developing nations, even the little public support that's available is coming increasingly under threat. Economies are slowing down. So the global economy is projected to grow around 2% in 2023, which is a substantial decline from previous expectations or projections. So in these conditions, obviously, one of the first challenges that many countries are facing is continuing financing these systems. Another threat comes from climate change and how it's impacting economies. 2022 had one of the highest incidents of catastrophes, natural disasters around the world, from droughts in the Horn of Africa to devastating hurricanes in Northern America, as well as floods that, for example, left one third of Pakistan on the water. So these devastating catastrophes also have a substantial effect on the ability of countries to produce income and also continue financing these systems. And at the same time, 
this also underscores the level of vulnerabilities that many populations are exposed because of these disasters. And the incidence of these disasters is increasing. So we will continue facing this kind of events that countries need to prepare for. So this is one of the things that we cannot avoid and we will need to think about how we build better systems to protect people that may be exposed to these kind of shocks. These shocks are exacerbated by the debt crises that many developing nations are facing. In low-income countries in particular, now we see many countries facing a debt crisis that has been accumulating over the last decade because they continue borrowing to sustain the economic growth based on certain expectations about commodity prices. And what we have seen is that many countries are now facing some difficulties to pay back the loans. So all these contexts make very challenging, at least in the short term, the expansion and the sustainability of welfare institutions in many countries. So Nahal, based on what Miguel says, it sounds like difficult economic situations coupled with the impacts of climate change are going to significantly alter the types of welfare that people in developing nations may have access to going forward. Yes, because these countries will need to allocate more funding away from welfare budgets to address these crises. So that's the situation happening in developing nations. But if you'll allow me to be a bit selfish here, what about in richer nations, where I assume money isn't as much of an issue? I'm sitting here in the U.S., one of the richest countries on Earth, but I have lots of friends who have terrible health insurance that they pay way too much money for. So why isn't this working in richer countries? You're absolutely right. Richer countries are also struggling to provide access to welfare. So I reached out to someone who can explain why that's going on. My research basically looks at how we can create prosperous welfare systems that flourish even in the absence of economic growth. So it's basically about how we meet the needs of everybody within the means of the planet. This is Christine Corlett-Walker. She's a research fellow at the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey in the UK. So your research focuses on welfare systems with richer nations. What current challenges are these welfare systems facing? Yeah, it's a very good question. Welfare systems across the OECD are facing a huge host of challenges. The OECD, which stands for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, is an intergovernmental organization with 38 so-called developed member countries. In 2019, average public spending on welfare amounted to about 20% in these OECD countries, although this figure varied hugely from country to country. France, for example, spent 31% of its GDP on social programs. The United States was somewhere in the middle with 18%, and Mexico at the bottom with only 7.5% spending. Christine says that while the demand for welfare is increasing, countries in the OECD have been reducing the amount that they spend on public welfare in response to growing challenges. We have rising demand as a result of an aging population. One of the OECD's projections was that around two thirds of OECD countries will have a quarter of their population over the age of 65 by 2050. So an aging population means that there are less younger and generally healthier people that are able to work and contribute to increased tax revenues and pension schemes. At the same time, it means that there are more older people who require access to health care and pensions. One place where this is especially striking is Japan, which has one of the fastest aging populations in the world. Right now, almost 30% of the Japanese population is over 65 years old, and that figure is going to rise. 
Other advanced economies, like Italy, Germany, and Korea, will face similar challenges from their aging populations. Christine says that all of this sits within a wider context of economic downturn. In fact, it's possible that in OECD countries, we reach somewhere near zero growth rates within the next decade or so. And that obviously makes the funding environment for welfare systems very challenging. Economic growth is important because developed nations rely on year-on-year growth to be able to respond to rising poverty and demographic pressures and to mitigate the impacts of emerging crises like climate change and the COVID-19 pandemic. So at the most basic level, we can think that the welfare system depends on economic activity and economic growth for its funding. So we need money in order to pay for the services that we deliver through the welfare system. So if the economy is not growing, it means that you're probably likely to have to increase tax rates in order to continue meeting demand for services as that demand grows. Whereas if we have continual growth in the economy, it means that the government can very happily not have to raise tax rates in a way that's deemed unacceptable, but also still provide that social safety net. So growth is the grease that allows the system to work without too much conflict. A lot of countries across the OECD have responded to this economic downturn with austerity measures, such as by slashing public welfare budgets. If we look at things like outsourcing and privatisation, which has been another major kind of response of governments to these increasingly challenging conditions for welfare systems, there's a growing involvement of financial entities in welfare provision, which is in many ways reorienting welfare systems and the economy more broadly towards the goal of financial profit rather than being focused on improving well-being and delivering services as well as possible for the greatest number of people possible. We also have a very politically unfavourable environment in many countries in terms of favouring smaller role for government and a much bigger role for private industry in providing welfare across different countries, Australia, the UK, Sweden, the US. So it's sort of a, a hotbed of all of these issues kind of intersecting. What have these changes meant for the ways in which people experience the provision of welfare? We know that quality is worse in for-profit companies across the board pretty much than it is in public sector services. So we see that like the kind of responses from government, although they may make sense on the surface in terms of shifting the costs of welfare provision off the balance sheet of the state and onto the balance sheet of private providers, actually we know that austerity has been pretty disastrous in terms of health and well-being, in terms of workforce shortages and people's ability to access welfare services in a timely way. There was a great study from England that showed that there was something like 45,000 additional deaths associated with funding cuts in healthcare services between 2010 and 2014. We can see that as a policy response, austerity is, in terms of health outcomes, pretty disastrous. And then obviously, on top of all of that, we've got you know the challenges created by the social and economic impacts of COVID, of the cost of living crisis, inflation, all of that is really coming together to paint a pretty challenging picture in terms of the future of welfare. Christine says that it's likely people will see access shrink even further, especially if countries continue to make public welfare dependent on economic growth. Within probably a decade we're looking at getting somewhere close to 0% rates of economic growth anyway. So this sort of context in which growth is slowing down, growth is becoming harder and harder to achieve, that is combined with the fact that we know that economic activity is associated with environmental impacts and carbon emissions. I think there is still a real belief in the idea that marketization will save the welfare system. 
A major part of your research looks at post-growth welfare. What do you mean by that? So a post-growth welfare system is a welfare system that can function and can flourish in the absence of economic growth. So in other words, it's resilient as much as possible to fluctuations in the growth rate and can operate independently of what the wider economy is doing to some degree. Based on everything you've been saying so far, that sounds wildly utopian. (laughs) Do you know what? I actually think perhaps politically, practically Not so much. So I think we are a long way from it in terms of political feasibility. But I do see that there is a lot of growth in terms of the use of terminology like post-growth and degrowth. And there's a lot more acknowledgement. I think we, we have some idea already of the core policy levers that we would need to pull. And that includes things like transitioning towards preventative local relational models of welfare, where we can keep demand in check through prevention rather than curative models. There's obviously a huge amount that can be done in terms of redistribution through progressive taxes on wealth and land, for example. And then there's also the question of reallocation, because we want to be ensuring that the money that is being pumped into the welfare system and the funding that we are providing is going to frontline staff and services and not to salaries for directors, dividend payments to shareholders, interest payments on debt, etc. That kind of prevention, redistribution, and reallocation, I'd say, are really core components to transitioning towards a post growth welfare system. Nahal, as Christine was explaining, there's general austerity as governments are trying to tighten their belts, and this is resulting in cuts to funding for public welfare. You mix this with privatization, you mix this with economic downturns globally, and you've got a bit of a mess for anyone who's reliant on any welfare system. Yes, and this is the case not only for the people receiving welfare, but also for the people providing it, like doctors and nurses. Mm. Public health care workers have been on strike across the world in response to these cuts. It sounds like things are pretty bleak for public welfare, no matter which side of the coin you're on, huh? So Dan, that is the case in wealthier nations. But I was surprised to find out that some developing nations are actually expanding social protections and access to welfare. My name is Erdem Yuruk. I'm a sociologist and I'm an associate professor at Koch University in the Department of Sociology in Istanbul, in Turkey. In his research, Erdem focuses on how developing nations have established welfare programs. To do this, he started by looking at how other researchers have classified welfare systems around the world. Because different countries have similar types of welfare states, and they are classified into different typologies. And the leading scholar of this literature, Costa Esping Anderson, in the early 1990s, classified Western welfare states into three typologies, social democratic corporatist and liberal welfare state regimes. The three categories Danish sociologist Gosta Espen Andersen came up with classified countries based on how they provide access to welfare. Social democratic regimes offer the most generous state welfare, guaranteeing universal health care, social assistance, and unemployment benefits. Scandinavian states such as Sweden and Norway are often cited as examples of this type of welfare state. Corporatist welfare regimes such as Italy and Germany provide benefits based upon employment-dependent insurance contributions. The state only steps in when people are unemployed and unable to pay. Liberal regimes of welfare tend towards the lowest levels of state intervention, leaving welfare mainly up to the private sector. Examples of such systems include the United States and Australia. 
but Erdem says that Esping Anderson's categories didn't consider non-Western developing nations. There are hundreds and maybe thousands of scholars doing extremely empirical and theoretically rich studies to compare and contrast welfare systems, but in the Western world. So this is an extremely Eurocentric literature. There are two reasons for this Western or Eurocentricism. The first thing that scholars think that in the non-Western world, there is no welfare state because capitalism is not fully developed in the non-West as opposed to European countries. So this is an underlying assumption. The second reason was that there was no data to conduct such similar analysis for the non-West. And we had to, first of all, create such a data set. And for the first two years of my five-year project, we spent a lot of time to build, to compile a huge welfare state data set. We call it Global Welfare Data Set, GLOW. Erdem and his colleagues then analyzed the data and found that if you compare welfare systems globally, a fourth category emerges. When you do your analysis from a global perspective with global data, what you see is four different global welfare state regimes. And one of them was this populist welfare state regime. And so this is a new regime that we identified. And so it included countries like Russia, Brazil, Turkey, South Africa, India, China, Argentina, and post-communist countries like Hungary, Poland. His research focus is largely on Turkey, where public welfare programs were introduced beginning in 1949 and were expanded in the 1990s. Since the 1990s, there is something that can be called as a social assistance expansion or boom in Turkey. Many different, very generous, expansive social assistance programs for the poor have been introduced or expanded. And before then, social welfare system was mostly limited to cover workers or civil servants with social security, with full-time permanent jobs, meaning half of the population, those people in the informal economy, had been historically excluded from welfare provision. State contribution to the social security funds remained marginal, and the government spent only around 6% of its national GDP on welfare until the 1990s. And then something historical happened uh, since the 2000s, The welfare state expanded rapidly to cover these historically excluded populations. And now almost 80 to 90 percent of the population is in one way or another part of the welfare provision. By 2020, state expenditures on social protections accounted for around 13 percent of the GDP. And this was interesting because... As scholars, as social scientists, we argue that neoliberalism is here and neoliberalism is wiping out the welfare state. But I saw that the Turkish welfare system expanded right in the middle of the neoliberal period. So what accounts for this puzzle? So this was my basic question. To answer this question, he came up with a hypothesis that the welfare state in countries like Turkey expands at times of social upheaval. I tried to set up a causal relationship from social movements to Turkish welfare policies. And I created a protest data set on Turkey by using manual methods. 
Meaning I simply sit down in the library and I look at the microfilm machine you remember from the movies and I counted every single event with the help of some research assistants and then I turned the words in newspapers into numbers in a data set. Took two years and I promised myself that no one should do this <laughs> again. And then I got a European Commission grant for five years, set up a huge team of computational linguists, computer scientists, engineers, political scientists, anthropologists, sociologists. And one part of the project was to create a comparative multilingual protest events data set for these set countries. And we used natural language processing, deep learning methods to automatically extract protest information from online news archives from India, South Africa, Brazil, Argentina, in Spanish, Portuguese, and English. And I'm really happy that we managed to deliver this protest data set. When he eventually compared the data, he found that these countries had one thing in common. The real interesting thing is that Turkish welfare state regime system looks like Brazil or India or Russia or like South Africa. So these emerging markets have developed certain types of very similar welfare states. These are very distant countries historically, geographically, culturally, in many respects, they are so different from each other. But when we look at their welfare systems, we see a very quite similar pattern. In the post-war period, they develop more or less generous, but limited social security programs for unionized workers, social workers, employees with social security, with permanent jobs. But then after 2000s, during the neoliberal period, they added on top of this half-mature social security programs, they added very generous social assistance programs. And this is what I and my colleagues in my project identified as a new welfare state regime in addition to existing welfare state regimes. Developing countries like Turkey, Brazil, and South Africa have been using welfare as a political bargaining tool. I tend to think that welfare state fulfills a political function as its primary function. Welfare state does not function to help people or to pull people out of poverty or to provide them social protection for their unemployment or sickness, etc., etc. These are to be secondary functions of the welfare state. Welfare fulfills a political function, and this function has two components. Welfare state is a political tool par excellence to demobilize political instability, social unrest, protest movements, and civil disorder in general. On the other hand, It's a perfect instrument for governments and elites to mobilize the necessary popular support in order to rule a country or in order to deal with certain political exigencies. The point is that they do not give social assistance when people become poor, but when the poor become radicalized or politicized. So the state responds to social upheaval by expanding welfare, but it's not that people mobilize demanding better welfare protections. 
people come together and get organized and get involved in struggle. People struggle for their ethnic or racial rights and they achieve or they do not achieve these rights. But even if they do not get their ethnic rights, they are provided social assistance because governments use this social assistance as a substitute to pacify or to demobilize this population. So this is really interesting. Welfare provision as a kind of political pacification is what you're finding, right? Yes, exactly. He says that there's historical precedence to this in developed countries like the United States. In the 1960s, there was a big social assistance program for families. And this huge social assistance program was not a reaction or response to growing poverty, but it was a reaction to black riots and the civil rights movement. And the poor people were involved in riots and they became a political threat. And in order to contain this population, governments expanded or delivered these huge social assistance programs. So whether or not a government has a generous social welfare state is not a really direct function of its economic capacity. Providing welfare isn't a bad thing, but he says that there are unintended consequences to how governments use this for political reasons. In all these cases that we analyze, a common factor is that these programs are demobilizing, pacifying containment strategies because They are designed and implemented to target some population groups, social movements, politically. When welfare is provided by states as a response to political mobilizing, how efficient is it? In most cases, it manages to demobilize people and decline political mobilization. But if the target social movements can overturn this strategy by demanding more and more and higher quality social assistance, this strategy doesn't work. The Turkish government is using social assistance as an explicit tool. They target very disproportionately Kurdish minority, Kurdish individuals. So they are trying to buy them off by delivering more social assistance. And the Kurdish movement initially called their supporters, Kurdish poor, to negate social assistance. But after some point, the Kurdish movement decided to develop their own programs of social assistance. And with this competition, actually, the government has lost its capacity to use social assistance uh, as a containment strategy. With this emerging form of welfare, what do you see as the danger or challenge with it, if this is how welfare is going to be provided. It's really sad to see that is, is such public budgets are being used to demobilize people, to devoid people of their political subjectivities and to erase their political demands. And also they have been the basis of rising authoritarianism in these countries because the poor people are electoral supports for many of these authoritarian populist regimes, using social assistance programs to legitimize and to establish authoritarian regimes. And so they are definitely not emancipatory programs. They are not liberating people from poverty or from oppression, because many studies have shown that the social assistance programs are not pulling people out of poverty. They are still poor, but their poverty is being managed. 
they stay in under the poverty line because the per capita levels of social assistance programs are not enough to make them untour, but they are really useful politically. Nahal, I find this very interesting to hear what Erdem has to say about how just as today governments are using social programs and welfare to pacify social movements, the U.S. was doing the same thing in the 60s. And I can see the dangers of that. Yeah. And Erdem told me that governments in developing nations have been increasingly leveraging the voting power of poor people. Essentially, they're using welfare programs to try to buy votes. It seems all of this tells us that providing public welfare isn't necessarily a question about a government's economic capacity. It's as much about political will. If governments want to, they can fund public welfare. Absolutely. And this is something that Miguel talked about, too, when I spoke to him. And he gave me two examples from Latin America. Despite the fact that there is this reduced fiscal space to sustain social spending in welfare institutions, I think there are also different strategies that can support or help countries to find different sources to continue building these institutions. So in Latin America, when Mexico faced the tequila crisis in December 94 up to 1997, the country was faced with a substantial reduction in the fiscal space because of the slowdown of the economy and also because of the structural adjustment programs that have to introduce to reduce the level of, of debt. So what Mexico did at that time was to shift subsidies. Mexico had very regressive food subsidies in place in those years. So the government decided to undo these subsidies to finance, at that time, the introduction of a program called PROGRESA. Another example is Bolivia, where the government was able to allocate more funds to public welfare when its income rose temporarily. Prior to the financial crisis of 2008, the international context had been favorable for the Bolivian economy because Bolivia relies heavily on the exports of minerals and hydrocarbons. And with the economic growth experience in Asian economies, the demand for these commodities was very high. So the government renegotiated the contracts. So by negotiating the contracts, the Bolivian government was able to increase the revenue. And with this additional revenue, helped to finance the introduction of two large social transfers that focus on children. So despite the fact that many countries face substantial and very difficult challenges, there are always ways to finance and make savings or reorganize spending to support these programs. But for countries to commit politically and economically, they need to understand the value of public welfare in their societies. Welfare institutions are very important elements to provide protection, but also to facilitate the development and prosperity of nations. When you have a population that can have access to health, for example, or can help families to send their kids to school and provide a minimum standard of living, these systems also allow societies to prosper and develop. When societies don't have this minimum level of conditions, countries will have much more difficulties in achieving social and economic development in the future and also peace and stability and keeping crime and other problems, social problems under control. So it's not just about providing protection to vulnerable populations, but also ensuring that nations can prosper overall. You know? 
that's it for this episode. Thanks to all the academics we spoke to. And if you're interested in learning more about post-growth, we did an episode back in October 2021 about degrowth, where we cover the topic in detail. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by Men Marwani. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. Men Marwani is also the show's executive producer. I'm your host, Nihal Al-Hadi. And I'm Dan Marino. Thanks for listening. Thank you.